Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you are not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. All of the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came nearer to David. 
with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Phil Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took a sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you, Melody. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we know you to be so kind, and we know you to be so merciful, and we just pray, Lord, that your kindness and mercy would be present as we study this ancient story, a true story, and I pray that even with all the gruesome details we'd be able to see you. We'd be able to see your son. I pray now that by your spirit, you'd make our hard hearts soft and that Jesus would be beautiful and believable. For we pray this in his name. Amen. <clears throat> well, good morning. If I have never had the pleasure of meeting you, my name's Ronnie, pastor here. Um, you know, just this week, Amanda and I were laughing about the Yanny Laurel YouTube phenomena. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Uh, if you, you know, uh, if, um, if you don't know what it is, I, I suppose you've been living under a stone. But here's what it is. You can look this up. You can fact check me on this. Uh, just look up Yanny Laurel. And uh, it's this computerized voice that's emitting at certain frequencies. And to half the population, it sounds like Yanny. And to the other half, it sounds like Laurel. Completely different. I've been listening to this thing like dozens of times, trying to make myself hear Laurel, but it's Yanny every time. 
And what, what interests me, what mystifies me, is how two people can listen to the exact same thing and hear and perceive completely different things. That's the essence of what we're learning about in this story today. This story that we just heard is the, the most famous story in the whole Bible, perhaps the most famous story in the whole world. Everyone knows the story. And this story is not about what you think it is. <laughs> this story is not really about David and Goliath. It's really a story about David and King Saul. Two guys looking into the same valley where a giant is and perceiving two totally different things. And by looking into the details of this story, we are going to be learning what we should be looking for in a king. If you're a visitor this morning, we're right in the middle of this sermon series on First and Second Samuel, and we've subtitled the sermon series, uh, Looking for or Searching for a King. And what we've learned so far in our study of Samuel is that Samuel is the very last judge of Israel, and he has reluctantly listened to the demands of the elders of Israel. They have asked for a king, just like all the other nations, and they got Saul. And Saul's ego is fragile, and his reign so far has been disastrous. And last week, we learned in chapter 16, God in his mercy appointed a new king, and it's a very unlikely candidate. It's a young shepherd boy, the eighth son of Jesse, and you know him, that's David. Now, there is in the scriptures, really in the ancient world, an order in which kings are established. First, they are anointed, then they are tested, and after that, they're coronated, they're crowned. Well, David was anointed last week, as we learned, and this week, in our passage today, he is being tested. And this testing is just wild, right? It's wild. So our passage picks up with this seafaring people who have really migrated from Crete, and they've landed on the shores of Canaan. And they have landed about the same time on the shores of Canaan that Israel is coming into Canaan, the promised land, under uh, the leadership of Joshua. Uh, this group is called the Philistines, and so they are like the longtime rivals of Israel. And the Philistines are like technologically advanced. They are dauntless warriors. I mean, they had iron chariots before iron chariots were cool, right? And on paper, on paper, Israel has long, long odds to win any battle against them. So the Philistines are marching deep into Israel territory, and they are now between uh, two mountains, and, and there's a valley. So they're on one mountain, and Israel's on the other. And a giant named Goliath throws down the proverbial gauntlet. When King Saul and David look into this valley, they perceive two very different things. Why? That's what we have to learn together this morning. So for you note takers, we're going to study this passage in two ways, just two points this morning. The first is we're going to see that this is a war between the gods 
And then we're going to see our second point. This is a war between champions. So uh, with that brief introduction, let's jump right into our text. Our first point, a war between the gods. So I briefly explained that although David has been anointed as king, uh, there still is a king in Israel, right? And his name is Saul. And Saul, uh, Saul, he, he does not act the way a king should act. Strangely, it would be this small shepherd boy who's handsome, ruddy in appearance, beautiful eyes, right, Amanda? Right? Uh, you know, whose name is David. And so the story of David and Goliath is really a story that's demonstrating how a king should act. And with his example, David becomes this antitype for what kings should be like. And by antitype, the word anti means like before or preceding, right? An antitype is a mold or a foreshadow uh, of what future kings should look like. Uh, in fact, uh, if you could think about in the days of Jesus, while Israel was under the rule of Rome, the people were waiting for a new Davidic king to come and to take the throne, right? Because they expected that the Messiah would be like David or in the mold of David, a Davidite. This is important to understand as we jump into our study of this text. Let's look at the details. So the Philistines are having a lot of military success until they, of course, arrived at the Valley of Elah, as it tells us in verse 2. At that moment, both armies are kind of at a standstill. Why? Well, in those days, nobody wants to fight a battle going uphill, right? So both armies are encamped on top of two different mountains. There's a valley between them. And if one army tries to charge the other, they would be at a distinct tactical disadvantage because they would have to fight going uphill, climbing a hill. Every soldier knows that it's better to fight your opponent going downhill with gravity on your side, right? So while both armies are there, the Philistines make an offer. Goliath walks into the valley. Verse 8, look there, says, Goliath says, choose a man for yourself. Let him come down. Let him fight with me. Kill me. We'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, you shall be our servants and serve us. So the proposal designates a champion who will fight man-to-man, hand-to-hand combat. And the champion represents the entire army. Two men will determine the destinies of their people, of these two nations. It's kind of like a penalty shot, right, at the end of a game. Now, the Philistines really liked this proposal because their champion was like a monster. Goliath, over eight feet tall. He's not skinny either, right? He's big. He's strong. Apparently, the point of his spear weighs 15 stinking pounds. And day after day, this giant warrior would walk into the valley and taunt Israel. That's kind of what trash talk looks like in the Bible. Now, this portion, this trash-talking portion of the Bible, is even more important than the fight, right? So the actual fight is described in two verses, verses 48 and 49. And if you were to read those verses out loud, it'd probably take you about 13 seconds. In some ways, the fight is really anticlimactic. It's not that big of a deal. The real action is what's happening prior to the fight. So let me just point out a few features of this discourse that occurred right before the fight. In the ancient world, 
people thought about their gods and deities as if they were local or regional, right? Outside of Israel, most people could not conceive of just one God being in charge of the whole world. Only the Israelites understood the world like that. Rather, how they thought of it is they thought of, their, of gods as belonging to certain people or, or gods that belong to a certain region or geography. So from their perspective, this fight is not about David and Goliath. This is a fight between the gods to see which one would prevail. And if you'll notice, as Goliath is waiting for someone to take up this offer, David appears, right? Now, this offer is made every single day, like 40 days straight, but one day, the wrong person hears the taunting, right? Um, David, we, we didn't read this particular portion because it, it was already long as it was, but he has three older brothers, and they're, they're, inscript, they're inscripted, they're part of Saul's army, and Jesse, their father, is regularly sending David to the fight to deliver food and cheese. Like, Think about this, like David is like on a cheese run, all right, when he hears Goliath. And so David is like personally offended, and like in a deep spiritual sense, he's insulted. He's like, like who in the world is this uncircumcised dude, verse 26? Like, why does he have to point that out? Like, that's pretty uncomfortable. He's like, who's this uncircumcised dude? Uh, he, he, uh, he's like, someone needs to like shut his mouth up. And like his brothers are like, David, like be quiet, shut up already. This is a really serious moment, right? Because they're really, really scared. And David seems to be naive or callous in this really tense moment. But David ends up getting an audience with King Saul and is like, hey, like I'll shut this guy up, right? Now, what's interesting is like, why is David so courageous? What is he seeing? Is he naive? See, when, when Saul looks at Goliath, he looks unbeatable. When David looks at Goliath, he looks uncircumcised. They perceive two very different things. And let me just translate that. In a Jewish worldview, to be uncircumcised, what that means is, is you are not armed with the promises of the one true God of the universe, the God of Israel. So David ultimately gets the nod to be Israel's champion. Now, David's just a youth, right? He's not even old enough to be inscripted into Saul's army. And so Goliath is insulted by David. I mean, he's not even a warrior. And so what does he do? Goliath shouts out insults and curses. Look at verse 43. He says, am I a dog? that you come to me with sticks? And then it says, and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. You see that? Notice that he curses him by his gods. Then after Goliath finishes talking, then David begins his, his moment of trash talking. And David does something similar. Look at verse 45. He says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. So David comes in the name of the Lord. Taking God's name for your own ends 
is very dangerous and most of the time like not a good idea. That's how come it's actually very, very rare in the Bible to just use God's name for your own purposes. That's what's happening here. It's very rare. Now, it's important to notice, if you can think about this, another place that this happens is in the New Testament. Remember Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Jesus, uh, the Sunday before the Friday that Jesus is crucified? They're, they're laying down palms, and what are, the, what are the crowds saying? They're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord the one who will deliver the many. And so when David comes in the name of the Lord, he is placing this fight squarely in the hands of his God, and he will be the one who delivers the many. Now, for the original audience, one thing is very clear. This is very clear to the ancient audience. This fight is not between Goliath and David. This fight is between the God of Goliath the gods of Goliath and the God of David, and the stronger God will win. And so the question is, which deity will die with its champion? Now, I've already mentioned you know, earlier, Goliath, together with his gods, are dead within 13 seconds. His head's cut off within 20. He's like going Medusa style, like holding up the head. It's gross. This is not even a struggle. I mean, it's so easy. Now, listen closely, because I, I don't want you to miss the point. If it is true that the real war was between the gods, then it's not David who won the fight. God did, right? That means that like any of the soldiers of Israel would have won the fight. Saul or any of the cowardly soldiers who were shaking in their boots would have won the fight. It didn't have to be David because God was going to win the battle. Now, if you can understand this, you can then begin to understand how absurd Saul's behavior was. It shows how absurd the, the, the cowardice of the army of Israel, right? None of them had enough faith in God. And that's how come in verses 10 and 11, he's, uh, you know, after the Philistines defying the ranks of Israel, it says they were greatly dismayed and afraid. In modern parlance, they, were, they are shook, right? The issue here is faith. Faith is what motivates us to obey God. Look, Saul made this incredible offer to any person who would defeat Goliath. You see that in verse 25? He says, um, any, the king will enrich the man who kills this giant, kills him with great riches and will even give his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. So the winner... Like, like Saul's scared. He's, he doesn't want to do it. He's sweetening up the deal. And he's like, whoever wins is going to get a whole bunch of money. And he's even going to become a prince because he gets to marry Saul's daughter. But even that was not enough to motivate them to obey God. Why? Well, here's the logic. If there is no God or if God is inactive, then their fear and cowardice actually makes perfect sense. If there's no God, then all the money in the world doesn't matter because dead people can't go to Beaver Creek and spend money, right? Dead people can't get married. So like the roar doesn't matter. But see, David's different. He's ready to fight. And when he comes to fight, he does not 
size up or analyze the giant in order to find his weakness. He doesn't make a plan. He doesn't decide to fight based on a tactical weakness. He does not say, you know, I think I can win. What he says is, God will do it, and I'm willing to step into the ring for him. David has confidence because he knows God. Because he knows this is a battle between the gods, and his God's the only one that even exists. That's where his faith comes from. Faith breeds obedience, and faithlessness breeds disobedience. Why does this matter? Most of us think that faith is about acknowledging like a series of beliefs about God. But if that is all that faith is to you, you will never obey God, not when it's hard. When God's word tells you to do something hard, you won't do it, right? You'll be like the cowardly soldiers. Because, I mean, they believed that their God existed, but they didn't actually have enough faith to get into the into the fight and risk. Just like, look, look, look at your life, your decisions. They are a testimony of your faith. How you spend your money shows you your faith. How you spend your time shows you your faith. Who you marry, who you want to marry shows you your faith. How you forgive people or how you hold grudges, shows you your faith. See, your life decisions are the fruit of your faith. Your faith has a direct correlation with your choices. And either you trust yourself and decide not to fight, or you trust God and risk. But being brave, being obedient, makes no sense unless there is a God. And if there is no God, then running away from obedience is the smartest thing. If there is no God, you absolutely should be jealous of other people if they have more stuff than you. But here's the point. You and I will make logical decisions with our lives based on what we truly believe. What we see in the story and what is uniformly true throughout the whole Bible is that true faith necessarily gives up, leads us to give up our rights and to live according to God's word and to live for Jesus no matter where that takes us, even if it takes us to a valley, you see. All right, well, I'm gonna move, I'm gonna transition to our second point because there's more. So far, what we've looked at as we've studied this passage is that it is a war or a battle between the gods. Now let's look at the story as a war between champions, between champions. When most people uh, look at the story, and I know you've heard the story before, we tend to look at David in terms of a person who exemplifies courage. And then we look at Goliath in terms of an obstacle that needs to be overcome with courage, right? And for that reason, you might, maybe you've heard this sermon where preachers like, what are the giants in your life? You need to slay your giants. Yeah, like, don't do that with the Bible. That's, that's weird. Uh, that doesn't make sense of actually how this story is told. And, and let me explain. So Robert Alter, he's this Hebrew scholar. He tells us that 
what we're seeing here is a break from how Hebrews normally tell stories. So Hebrew narrative is usually very economical with their words. Like in modern fiction, just as I juxtapose it, uh, we love to include a lot of details. So for instance, if you're reading uh, Hunger Games, the reader knows what Katniss Everdeen is wearing. Uh, you know the color of her hair. You even know what she's smelling, right? Details, modern fiction. Uh, th those are details that would be very common uh, for modern writers. But they are actually virtually absent from biblical stories. Hebrew writers focus on dialogue and action, and that's it. And that's why the description of Goliath is so odd. It sticks out. From verses 4 to verse 8, you are just learning about like his tech and his gear. All of these details are meant to help the reader understand something, and it's this. Goliath had every reason to be courageous. He was an incredible warrior. And so what we see in the story is not one courageous person and one obstacle. What we see here are two courageous people, right? David, David and Goliath are illustrating for us two very different ways to have courage. I mean, Goliath was a remarkable specimen. He was large, he was uh, strong, physically very talented, but also he had like the latest gear. He had bronze armor, impressive weapons, and on top of that, Clearly, he had very high self-esteem. Like, he looked at himself. He has never lost a fight in his life. And he thought, man, if, if I look at myself, I have nothing to fear. It, it allowed him to get rid of any fear, and all he is left with is courage. There is no evidence in this text that Goliath thought there was any danger in what he was doing. He, there's, he did not detect danger in the least. Then on the other side, you have David. David's small, young. He couldn't even wear the armor, right? I mean, it says uh, in verses 30 and 39, Saul gives him his kingly armor, right? He uh, clothed him with a coat of mail. Verse 39, David strapped his sword over his armor. He tried in vain to go. He hadn't tested this. And he's like, I cannot go with these. I've not tested them. And so he, he took off the gear. David has no experience uh, in fighting people, really only animals. And he looks like he had, you know, he had his dad's coat on and it's just, he looked a little clumsy. He's like, no, I'm not doing this. So he goes out armed with shepherd's tools, a staff, a slingshot, and a pouch of stones. Now, Goliath sees this and he's incensed. Verse 43, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Like, am I a shepherd dog? right? And with none of the things that Goliath had, David was able to say to his own people, verse 32, he's like, hey, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go out and fight. He's, he's like, we got this. Both men had a lot of confidence and courage. What's the difference? This issue of faith and courage has interested me for many years. I actually believe it's one of the most relevant issues for the modern church. Um, as many of you know, I, in my younger life, uh, 
was uh, I was in the military for, for many years. And um, I have friends who have died serving their country in Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, watching people be courageous is fascinating. See, on one hand, I would see men who, who willingly went to war. They marched right into danger and they risked their lives. And yet, these same men would return home from war and they would not have the courage to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to their wives when they spoke harshly to them or to their children. They didn't have the courage to admit their addictions. They didn't have the courage to be honest in their professional lives. And I realized something. We're thinking about courage all wrong. It's not real courage. It's simply quick math on whether or not I like my odds. If I like my odds, I present as courageous. And if I don't, then I become really fearful. And the emotion of fear just makes you think about yourself. Like a self-addiction. It's, I mean, fear is a powerful motivator. Fear makes you self-absorbed and, and to use self-protection. And when you start thinking about yourself chronically, you're being the opposite of courageous, right? That's fear. And what interests me is how then do we get rid of fear? See, most modern psychologists and even churches employ a, a Goliath model of courage, but it's really just fake courage. Goliath got rid of his fear by looking at himself. Y'all remember years ago that Saturday Night Live skit with Stuart Smalley? A few of the older generation probably will. So like before each show, Stuart Smalley would look himself in the mirror and he would say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me, right? He's just like self-talk, right? Um, and the skit's funny, but it kind of represents this movement in the realm of self-esteem or to, to manifest something. Y'all, that's, that's like, people are always like, I'm going to manifest that. I don't even know what that means. But you know, that, that's, the, that's the talk. You know, Tim Keller actually makes this point. Um, but psychologists are now actually helping people to overcome their fears through visualization, right? So if you're afraid of flying, you visualize yourself uh, happily flying in a plane and landing safely. Uh, if you have a, a fear of public speaking, you visualize yourself speaking in front of a group successfully. I had to do that this morning. Uh, if you, um, if, if, in each case, you're visualizing something, right? And what you're doing is you're taking an inventory of yourself and you're rationalizing why you can fulfill your objective successfully and thus overcome your fear. And, and there's some help to that, all right? I'm not totally cynical. But my problem with that primarily is this. What happens when there is zero prospects for success? See, David looked at himself, took an inventory, saw a high probability for success, and therefore he had courage. David never looked at himself. Rather, he thought, I might die, but I'm going to be obedient anyway. See, what if being courageous means dying? 
What if being courageous means being honest in your professional life, which means that you will be significantly less rich? What if being courageous means admitting that you are as sinful as people think you are? Like, what if the reward for obedience is not success or victory, but rather death and defeat? If the right thing to do is to give up your parachute on a plane that's about to crash, where do we find courage to do it? Self-confidence? Visualization? Can we still be courageous when dying is the right thing to do? That's what interests me. Because I want us as a community to be courageous no matter the cost. I want us to be courageous because that's what God wants. And where do we find that class of courage? Because I don't know about you, but I like, I vacillate between either like self-confidence like Goliath or paralyzing fear like Saul or like all the soldiers of Israel. See, the thing is, both Saul and Goliath are actually doing the same thing. They're both looking at themselves. Like I said, if you like your prospects, you, you present as self-confident. If you don't, you're fearful. When Goliath was taunting, it was like a black hole, like this powerful center of gravity. I mean, he is all that any of the Israelite soldiers could see. I mean, their world was suffocating and, and it was shrinking. Man, I, I know what it feels like when my life orbits around a trouble that I can't seem to shake. Like lying on my bed and it just haunting me. Do you? Do you know what that's like? Maybe it's a criticism that's a little bit too close to the bone. And maybe you can't get out of that loop of shame that it's causing. Or maybe it's at that child that is wandering into trouble that you love so much. And you can't get off the conveyor belt of anxiety. It just keeps drawing you in. Or maybe it's your job or school, that nagging sense that you can't keep up. And things are just starting to feel like the sun is going dark, just pulling you in. Look at me, you guys. I know this is you. Nobody gets a free ride in this life. But here's what I want you to see. There's something more going on in the world that is happening in your Valley of Elah. There's more than you can see, more than you can perceive. And this text is begging you to see it. David saw more. David didn't look to himself for confidence. 
He didn't look at the odds. He didn't evaluate the prospects. David knew God. He knew him. And that was enough. One champion, Goliath, looked to himself. He died. Saul looked to himself, was paralyzed by fear. But the other champion looked to the Lord. And that was enough. That was enough regardless of outcomes. And when David looked at the valley of Elah, he perceives it so completely different. David knew that his body was ordinary. He is simply a fragile jar of clay. But that jar of clay was made and designed for something more. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul would echo this sentiment. He would dial into it in 1 Corinthians 4 when he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but we do not despair. We're persecuted, yes, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be revealed in our bodies. Man, what would it be like for us to believe that? Okay, let me conclude. Let me land this plan. I know I've said a lot this morning. Let me just finish with just one final thought. So we began looking and studying this passage as a story, as a battle between gods, and then we looked at it as a battle between champions. You know, two people looking into the same valley and perceiving very different things. But I wonder if you and I are still left asking this question. How? Like, how do I get that kind of faith? I mean, how do I get that kind of courage? You have that question? Have you heard the story about Team Hoyt? It's like, have you heard this? It's a father and son. It's, uh, the father's name is Dick, and his son is Richard. And uh, Dick was a retired military officer. And his son, when his son was being born, um, the umbilical cord was wrapped around the child's neck during birth. And uh, Richard was born with very, very serious and severe complications. And he, uh, he had, cerebral, developed, had cerebral palsy. Um, when, when Richard uh, was in high school, the son was in high school, um, he heard about this lacrosse player at his school who was, had a terrible accident and was paralyzed. And so at the school, they had this 5K. It's like a benefit that was put on for this lacrosse player. And so Richard, the son, was like, Dad... I want to run this 5K. But of course, like, he can't run. He's severely, severely disabled. And so what his dad did is he trained for it, and he carried his son the whole 5K. And they did it, and they got second to last place. Not last place, but second to last place. 
But afterward, the son remarked, he, he said, this is the first time in my life that I didn't feel impaired or handicapped. <laughs> Why his dad held him? So, so the dad, Dick, said, well, let's do more. By 2016, they, comp- they competed in 1,130 endurance competitions, marathons, Ironmans, triathlons. And in every race, the father would put his son in some cart. Like if he's running, he has this push cart that he's pushing. Or if he's swimming in a triathlon, literally he's putting his son in a little dinghy, in a little boat, and tying a rope to it around his chest. And he swims and pulls his son in the water. Or if he has a bike, he's literally putting his son in a little carriage behind his bike. And do you know what happened? They finished all of these races, and the son celebrated every time like he did something. And they were both, listen to me, they were both inducted into the Ironman Hall of Fame. Like, you know the medal that they give to Hall of Famers? They gave that medal to both father and son. Even though the son can't even run or swim or bike, he gets inducted just because the father, Dick, decided that he was going to carry his son to victory. That's a picture of what God does for us here. He provides a savior, a champion who who fights for us. And so we're back to our question, like, where do I get that kind of courage and trust? Well, here's the answer. When you look at this story, do not put yourself into the shoes of David. Like, do not identify with David. You're not David in the story. You are either Goliath, because you're disinterested in God and you need to be honest about that, or more likely, you're in the group with the rest of us. That is, cowardly soldiers on the sidelines who are too afraid to fight. That's who we are. But the beauty of this story is that there is a David, and he's not simply our example or our inspiration. The beauty of the story is that it points us to the true David. The Davidite, Jesus, our champion. See, that's the whole gospel message. Jesus is our representative. This story is not about slaying our giants. It's about God standing in for us as our champion. He's the one pulling us, doing all the work. You didn't hang on a cross. Right, You didn't have nails pierced in your hand. You didn't have a crown of thorns on your brow. But you benefited from it. And we share in that victory. And when he gets the gold medal, we get the gold medal. We didn't do anything except to add a little weight to the race. That is the whole gospel message. Don't miss it when you read David and Goliath. The destiny of our champion, his destiny has become our destiny, the one for the many. Jesus conquered all of his and our enemies on the cross. Do you believe that? 
We are searching for a king, and this is what he looks like. Amen? Amen.